Lessons 46 to 49 of the History of London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. The History of London by Walter Besant. Lesson 46. Plays and Pageants, Part 1. There were no theatres in England, nor any plays, before the reign of Queen Elizabeth. This is a statement which is true, but needs explanation. It is not the case that there was no acting. On the contrary, there has always been acting of some kind or other. There was acting at the fairs, where the cheap Jack and the Quack had their tumbling boys and clowns to attract the crowd. There were always minstrels and tumblers, men and women who played, sang, danced, and tumbled in the hall for the amusements of the great people in the long winter evenings. Not including the wandering mummers, the theatre was preceded by the religious drama, the pageant and the mask. The religious drama was usually performed in churches, but sometimes in market-places and in front of churches. They represented scenes from the Bible and acts of saints. In a time when the people could not read, such shows presented sacred history in a most vivid form. No one could possibly forget any detail in the Passion of Our Lord who had once seen it performed in a mystery, with the dresses complete, with appropriate words and action, and with music. In the year 1409 there was a play representing the creation of the world, performed at Clerkenwell. It lasted eight days, and was witnessed by a vast concourse of all ranks. Here were shown Paradise, Our First Parents, The Admonition of the Creator, The Fall and the Expulsion. Such a sight was better than a hundred sermons for teaching the people. The plays were not generally so long and so ambitious. They acted detached scenes, the two men of Emmaus meeting the risen Lord, the raising of Lazarus, the birth of Christ, the flood, the fall of Lucifer, the shepherds of Bethlehem, and other scenes. The mystery or sacred play was the Sunday school of the Middle Ages. By those plays they learned the whole of Scripture history. The churches taught detached portions by the frescoes on the wall, the painted windows, and the carvings, but the history in its sequence was taught by the sacred dramas. We have very full accounts of one miracle play, that which was annually performed by the guilds of the city of Chester. It was performed at Whitsuntide, and lasted three days. The play began with the fall of Lucifer performed by the Tanners, went on to the creation by the Drapers, then to the flood, and so on. Nine plays were performed on the first day, nine on the second, and seven on the third. Each guild provided a scaffold on wheels. The scaffold was provided with a canopy which would represent the sky, or the roof of a house, or a tent, or a cave, as the play demanded. The performers were properly dressed for their parts, there was music, and in some cases there were songs. Under the scaffold was the room where the actors dressed, and where the properties were kept. Every play was performed in every principal street. When one was finished, 
the scaffold was rolled to another station, and the play was repeated. This method prevented crowding. The most sacred persons were exhibited at these plays, and nothing was spared to make them realistic to the last degree. Sometimes devils were put upon the stage, flames issued from their mouths, they performed tricks of buffoonery, they dragged off sinners to their doom. Sometimes comic scenes were introduced, as in the play of the Flood, where it was common to represent Noah's wife as a shrew, who beats her husband and refuses to go into the ark. These plays were swept away by the Reformation. They had been productive for a long time of mischief, rather than of instruction. The profanity of the comic scenes increased, and reverence was destroyed when in the same tableau which presented the most sacred of events appeared the most unbridled buffoons. Religious plays have never been allowed since the Reformation. Should they again be put upon the stage, it must be under the safeguard of those who can be trusted to admit of no other consideration than the presentation in the most reverent manner of sacred subjects. There must be no sort of gain for those who manage, or those who act, such plays. Many scenes and events of the Bible would lend themselves wonderfully to dramatic rendering, but the choice of these must not be left to the lessee of a theatre, nor must the acting of such plays be permitted to those who live by making the people laugh. End of Lesson 46 Lesson 47. Plays and Pageants, Part 2. After the religious dramas, the pageants gratified the desire for spectacle and show. Pageants were held on every grand occasion, to welcome the sovereign, to honour the new Lord Mayor, to celebrate a victory. Then they erected triumphal arches adorned with pasteboard castles, ships, houses, caves, all kinds of things. They either carried with them, as part of the procession, or they stationed at some point the city giants. London was not alone in having giants. York, Norwich, Chester possessed city giants. In Belgium the city giant is still carried in procession in Antwerp, Douai, and other towns. The figure of the giant symbolised the strength and power of the city. After Agincourt, Henry V was welcomed at the south gate of London Bridge by two giants. His son, Henry VI, was also received by a giant seventeen years later. Two giants stood on London Bridge to welcome Philip and Mary. The same two at Temple Bar afterwards welcomed Elizabeth. The pair of giants now in Guildhall were carved in 1707. The names Gog and Magog are wrong. The original names were Gog-Magog and Corineus. The following account of the pageant to celebrate the return of the victor Henry V after Agincourt is preserved in Stowe's London. The mayor and aldermen, dressed in scarlet, with collars and chains, with four hundred citizens in Murray, all well mounted, rode out to meet the king at Blackheath. Then, after formal greetings, they all rode to London. 
In Southwark the King was met by all the London clergy in their most sumptuous robes, with crosses and censers. At the entrance of London Bridge on the top of the tower stood a pair of giants, male and female, the former bearing in his right hand an axe, and in his left hand the keys of the city. Around them stood a band of trumpeters. On the drawbridge were two lofty columns, on one of which stood an antelope, and on the other a lion, both the king's crests. At the other end of the bridge was another tower, and within it an image of St. George, with a great number of boys representing angels. These sang an anthem, Give thanks, O England, to God for victory. This is supposed to be preserved in the song Our King Went Forth to Normandy. On Cornhill there was erected a tent of crimson cloth, ornamented with the king's arms. Within it was a company of prophets in golden coats. As the king approached, they set loose a great number of small birds, which fluttered about while the prophet sang Cantate Domino Canticum Novum, Sing unto the Lord a new song. In Cheapside the conduit was hung with green. Here sat the twelve apostles and the twelve kings, martyrs and confessors of England. They also sang a chant and made the conduit run with wine. This represented the reception of Abraham by Melchizedek. The cross of Cheap was built over by a high tower of wood, covered all over with splendid coats of arms. There was a stage in front on which a crowd of girls came with timbrels dancing and singing. Thus the maidens welcomed David when he returned from the slaughter of Goliath and all about the building were crowds of boys representing the heavenly host, who showered down coins resembling gold and boughs of laurel, and sang Te Deum Laudamus. Lastly there was another tower at the west end of Cheap. In each corner of this stood a girl, who out of a cup strewed golden leaves before the feet of the king, and there was a high canopy painted with blue and stars, and beneath a figure all gold, to represent the sun surrounded by angels, singing and playing all kinds of musical instruments. This witnessed, the king went on to St. Paul's, to pay his devotions. When you read this bald account of one of the greatest pageants ever celebrated in the city, you must fill it up by imagining the long procession, every one in his place. Trumpeters, bowmen in leather jerkins, men-at-arms in shining helmet and cuirass, horsemen in full armour, knights, nobles, heralds all in full panoply, banners and bannerets, the bishop and all the clergy, the king and his retinue, the lord mayor and his four hundred followers. Imagine the blare of the trumpets, the singing of the chants, the roaring of the people, the crimson hangings all along the line of march at every window. There were no police to keep the line. You might see the burgesses running out of the taverns on their way, with blackjacks of Malmsey, to regale the gallant soldiers who had fought and won the victory. You would see the king bareheaded. 
Why was he bareheaded? Because he was so modest, this brave king. Because he would not let the people see his helmet dinted and misshapen, with the signs and scars of hard battle, in which he had played his part as well as any humble leather-jerkined bowman in his array. Your ancestors, these soldiers and these citizens, your forefathers, they knew, far better than you will ever know, how to marshal a gallant show. We have lost the art of making a pageant. It remains with us once a year in the Lord Mayor's show. But think of Henry's riding into London, compared with the Lord Mayor's show. End of Lesson 47 Lesson 48 Plays and Pageants Part 3 between the pageant and the play stands the mask, a form of entertainment which achieved its greatest splendour both in stage-mounting and in the words and songs in the reigns of Elizabeth and James I. Nowhere was the mask more carefully studied and more magnificently presented than in London. The scenic display which in the early theatre was so meagre was carried in the mask to a height never surpassed until the splendid shows of the present day. Nor did the greatest poets disdain to write words for the mask. The most beautiful of those which remain are to be found in Ben Jonson's works. Every great man's house had a hall which was used for the mask. Bacon, who gives directions for building a house, orders that there must be a room built on purpose for these performances. Under it is to be another room for the actors to dress, and for the properties, i.e. the things requisite for the presentation of the mask, such as scenery, the woods, fountains, rocks, palaces, etc., that might be required. Let us show what a mask was like, by describing one of Ben Jonson's. It is called the Mask of Oberon, and was performed before Prince Henry, the eldest son of James I, who died in youth. The scene presents a rock with trees beyond it, and, quote, all the wildness that can be presented, end quote. All is dark. Presently the moon rising shows a satyr, one of the beings with whom the ancients peopled the forests and wild places. They were drawn with the feet and legs of goats, short horns on the head, and the body covered with thick hair. This satyr lifts his head and calls his companions. There is no answer. He blows his cornet. Echo answers him. He blows again, and is again mocked by the echo. A third time he blows, and other satyrs come leaping and dancing upon the stage. Silenus, their leader, bids them prepare to see the young Prince Oberon. The scene opens. The rocks and forests disappear. There is shown a glorious palace whose walls and gates are transparent. Before the gates lie asleep two sylvans, i.e. men of the woods. The satyrs gather round these sleeping sentinels and wake them up with singing Buzz, quoth the blue fly, hum, quoth the bee, buzz and hum they cry, and so do we. 
in his ear, in his nose, thus do you see? They tickle them. He ate the dormouse, else it was he. The sylvans wake. They explain that it is yet too early for the gates to open. Meantime, let them sing and dance to while away the time. One of them sings, therefore. After the song they fall into an, quote, antic dance, full of gesture and swift motion, end quote, and thus continue till the crowing of a cock gives the signal for the whole palace to open. It is like a transformation scene at a pantomime. There is the palace with all its occupants, the, quote, whole nation of fays, end quote, or fairies. Some are playing instruments of music, some are singing, some are bearing lights. At the back of the stage sit the knights maskers, with them Oberon in his chariot, and then, drawn by two white bears, guarded by three sylvans on each side, the chariot moves down the stage. Observe that to produce all these effects, the stage must have been very deep. The song they sing is in praise of the king. Melt earth to sea, sea flow to air, and air fly into fire, whilst we in tunes to Arthur's chair bear Oberon's desire, than which there's nothing can be higher save James to whom it flies, but he the wonder is of tongues and ears and eyes. The satyrs leap and dance again for joy at so splendid a sight. Then Silenus speaks in praise of Prince Oberon, who is, of course, Prince Henry, the elder son of James, who died young. The flattery is no worse than was usual in masks. Silenus says that the prince stays the time from turning old, and keeps the age up in a head of gold. He makes it ever day and ever spring when he doth shine, and quickens everything. Then two fays sing a song, and all the fays together dance, after which all together sing. Then Oberon and his knights dance. Another song follows. Then they all together dance, quote, measures, corantos, and galliards, end quote, till Phosphorus the day-star appears, and calls them away. To rest, to rest, the herald of the day, Bright Phosphorus commands you hence, obey. They quickly dance their last dance, one by one getting into the palace. Then the star vanishes, the day breaks, and while the last song is sung, the machine closes, i.e. the palace becomes a wall of the room, and the show is over. This is the pretty song which ends the mask. Oh, yet how early, and before her time, the envious morning up doth climb, though she not love her bed. What haste the jealous sun doth make, his fiery horses up to take, and once more show his head. Lest, taken with the brightness of this night, the world should wish it last, and never miss his light. End of Lesson 48 Lesson 49 Plays and Pageants, Part 4 Through the religious drama, the pageant, the mask, we work our way to the play itself. 
the first beginnings of the modern drama must here be passed over. There were the rough and unformed comedies, such as Gamma Girton's Needle, performed in a college hall, or the tragedy played on boards spread over a wagon in the courtyard of an inn. Let us suppose that we are past the beginnings, and are in Shakespeare's time, i.e. the end of Queen Elizabeth and the whole reign of James I. The first theatre was built in 1570. Thirty years after there were seven. The Queen had companies of children to play before her. They were the boys of the choirs of St. Paul's, Westminster, Whitehall and Windsor. The actors called themselves the servants of some great lord, Lord Leicester, Lord Warwick, Lord Pembroke, Lord Howard, the Earl of Essex, and others all had their company of actors, not all at the same time. The principal houses were those at Southwark, and especially at Bankside, where there were three, including the famous Globe, the Blackfriars Playhouse, the Fortune in Golden Lane, and the Curtain at Shoreditch. If you will look at the map, you will observe that not one of these theatres is within the city. That at Blackfriars was in the former precinct of the Dominicans, and outside the city. No theatre was allowed in the city. Thus early sprang up the prejudice against actors. Probably this was of old standing, and first belonged to the time when the minstrel and the tumbler, the musician and the dancing girl, the buffoon and the contortionist, wandered about the country free of rule and discipline, leading careless and lawless lives. The theatre was octagonal in shape, but circular within. What we call the pit was called the yard. The stage projected into the yard about three or four feet high. The people who filled the yard were called groundlings. Round the house were three galleries, the lowest of which contained rooms or private boxes. What we call the upper circle and the gallery were above. There were no seats in the pit, nor apparently in the upper circles. On either side of the stage sat or lay gentlemen, chiefly of the younger kind, who smoked pipes of tobacco and talked loudly, disturbing the performance. At the back of the stage was a kind of upper stage supported on columns, which gave the players a tower, gallery, wall, a town, or an upper story of a house, or anything of the kind that they wanted. There was a great sale of apples, nuts, and ale before the play began, and between the acts. Boys hawked the newest books about the rooms. The people, while they waited, smoked pipes, played cards. Above the stage on one side was the music. Three times the trumpets sounded. At the first, those who were outside hurried in to get a place. At the second, the card-players left off their games. At the third, those who bawled apples and ale, and shouted the name of the new book, became silent. The audience settled down. The play began. Not much costume was wanted, that of the Elizabethan, noble, courtier, young knight, clown, fitted any and every age. There was little scenery required, blue hangings above meant day, black hangings night. 
the actors came out upon the advanced stage and played their parts. No doubt the illusion was as complete as we can contrive with all our scenery, mounting and correctness of costume. The parts of women were taken by boys. No women appeared on the stage until the reign of Charles II. The play began with the prologue, spoken by an actor dressed in a long black velvet coat, bowing very humbly to the audience. After the play was over, the clowns began to tumble and to sing. In short, a farce succeeded a tragedy. The time of performance was one o'clock, and the performance lasted until five. In the year 1610, the Lord Mayor and Alderman, being alarmed at the increasing popularity of the play, ordered that there should be only two theatres, the Fortune in Golden Lane and the Globe at Bankside. This order, however, like so many other laws, was only passed to satisfy a passing scare, and does not seem to have been carried into effect. It was in such a theatre as this, and with such scenery, that the immortal plays of Shakespeare and Ben Jonson were acted. When next you read a play of Shakespeare, remember the stage projecting into the pit, the people in the pit all standing, the gallants on the stage talking and smoking, the ladies in the boxes, the boys enjoying apples and nuts and ale and new books, and the actors playing partly on the stage advanced, and partly on the stage behind. End of Lesson 49 Recording by Ruth Golding